Data Futurology has three exciting conferences coming up in the second half of the year. We have Data Engineering on the 5th of September in Sydney, followed by Advancing AI on the 6th and 7th of September in Sydney. And then October 24th and 25th, we're going to have our Ops World event in Melbourne. Our conferences cover three main pillars, executive perspectives on leadership and strategy in the space, industry use cases and case studies. And then the third one is advancements in the technologies. Come and find out what's happening in the community. Bring your teams along, get everyone together. It's going to be three great events. Hope to see you there. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers, and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project-focused data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Welcome to Data Futurology. Today, we're going to be talking about data quality for AI. So it's a topic that we've heard from so many people that are so interested to hear because uh, data quality creates the or is the foundation for the quality that we can get out of our artificial intelligence and our, and our machine learning models. So for that, I've got a super special guest. Uh, and his name is Chad Anderson. He's a chief operator at Data Quality Camp. Uh, and he's been in the space for a long time. Dad, I'm so excited to have you on the show. How are you going today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Right. Thanks so much. Um, so uh, at, at the beginning, can you tell us uh, a little bit about Data Quality Camp and uh, a bit about yourself too? Uh, sure. Uh, maybe I'll start with a bit about myself. So I've been in data for about 10 years. I ran most recently the data platform team at a company called Convoy, which is a late stage freight technology startup based in Seattle. Uh, prior to that, I worked on the AI platform team at Microsoft. And since then I've left and I've started a community with around 7,500 plus members called Data Quality Camp. Uh, it's a free group, anyone can join. You can get there through uh, by typing into URL datequality.camp slash Slack. And we are a community to discuss uh, data quality at scale, uh, both in terms of strategy and implementation. I love it. I love it. That's great. And how did you come to the to the point of deciding to start Data Quality Camp? Well, I was trying to roll out a data quality infrastructure at Convoy, and there wasn't a lot of good um, information about exactly how to do that mm -hmm. in this he uh, convoluted. There was a lot of vendors involved. And ultimately, it just made things uh, really, really difficult to deal with, um, not being able to find objective information from experts. And that's why I decided that having more community-driven knowledge was the best way to uh, you know, learn objectively what someone should do to roll out um, data quality at scale. 
and um all and and thankfully that's that's kind of what's happened i love it i love it um and uh, besides the the proliferation of of technologies that that go into that space what uh, and sort of navigating that what are the other challenges that you see that people need to overcome to be able to uh, do data quality at scale yeah there's a lot of those a lot of the challenge comes from the historical ballot baggage of most data infrastructure um, companies data has been around for a long time in some cases it's actually preceded the software so it's very very old um, it oftentimes hasn't had the proper tender love and care that the software has as the business has grown so um, there might be you know tables that nobody owns anymore there might be data that no one's looking at anymore but it's just kind of piling up uh, lots of tech debt or data debt, as I uh, like to call it. And um, you you oftentimes have uh, big issues with change management where um, you've got various people in a company that might own different pieces of data and they're leveraging that data for their particular use case. And um, the changes that they make to their data sets may not be beneficial to uh, downstream teams that are taking dependencies on those data sets. So big change management problem, lots of moving parts, lots of complexity, lots of tech debt, and that ultimately just makes it very hard to deal with and navigate. And growing dependencies uh, throughout the organization that as as well companies have become more, more data-driven, now uh, the data pipelines and the data quality becomes core to the function of the organization. Uh, and it's something that everyone depends on. Um, so n not understanding the downstream impacts of poor data quality or changes to the data um, can really tie uh, organizations in knots. I know I know it, it happens um, and it's happened everywhere I worked that you know whenever we miss some of the um, some of the dependencies, make a change and then we we hear back from the from different parts of the business say, hey, what happened here? Um, why were we involved in the change? So the change management piece, as you say, is is critical. Um, mate, so many, so many different uh, aspects there. Um, one of one of my friends uh, who, who's been on, on the show um, as well, he uh, once said to me that if you think about a company having um, technology processes, people and data, the only one that sticks for kind of forever with the company is the data. That the people will change, the, the processes change, the software, the technology changes, and that the data will always remain. Um, and he's like, that's how you have to treat your data. Like it's your asset for such a long time. Um, but often the way that we approach it is to try and fix the data downstream. Um, so what what and by that I mean kind of in the warehouse versus having um, better data quality capture at the um, at the core systems or the operational systems in the organization. What what's your view between um, fixing the the quality that of the data when it comes into into a warehouse or an engineering that engineering space uh, versus looking at it in the core um, software or operational software of the organization? Uh, yeah, I think that. Fixing the, or, or even monitoring for data quality um, downstream in the analytical environment can definitely be useful to get an understanding of, you know, how much is going wrong and, and, and where it's going wrong. 
But the analogy that I like to use is if you don't have any type of preventative system in the operational layer, then it's a bit like having a fire alarm, but no firemen, right? Like you're going to get the notification and you're going to see the loud beeping sound and it's probably going to wake you up in the middle of the night. Um, but if there really is a fire there, then that's a big problem, right? You you need someone to come and actually put it out for you else your house is going to burn up. And if there's not really a big fire, then ultimately that alarm is just going to annoy you and you're going to take the batteries out because you don't want to listen to it anymore. And those are that's kind of like where a lot of organizations are today, I think. They're either trapped between this, these two states of either there are real fires, there really are serious issues happening to their data that's making them less useful or costing the business money, or there's lots of little fires that are maybe not having a huge business impact, but because there's no way to actually identify what's a sort of big, important, backwards incompatible change and what's not, you're just testing for everything it leads to alert fatigue, right? It leads to people now starting to ignore the tests, starting to ignore the monitors, and the and then now all the data quality is out the window. Mate, it's like you're um, get a window into my life. Um, let's, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, have seen that, have seen that happen. And um, how, how should people start to think about improving data quality? What do you see as the, the first initial steps that people can take uh, to have a, a more uh, robust approach to, to making a difference there? I think the, uh, a big step that I've, I've seen, it, it's, it's interesting how frequently it goes ignored, but a lot of it I, I think is due to a lot of data engineers and data architects when they started a new job are just kind of thrust into it and there's a million things to do. And it just becomes very hard to separate yourself from kind of the daily grind of the job and like take a step back and really think about, hey, why am I here? Like, what is the work that I'm supposed to be doing? And so what I've tried to do in every new data role that I start is first account where the data is being used. That's very important. So at Convoy, we call these tier one data services. So these were data assets that were very clearly delivering you know, tangible business value to the company. It might be some operationalized machine learning models. It might be some reports that were really essential to the marketing team. And they use that to de determine like how much spend they were going to do over any, uh, you know, month or a quarter or something like that. Um, it might be data that we are pushing into our application and showing off to our customers. But either way, there needs to be some accounting that's done of like, what is the useful data and where is it? And it's also important to figure out if that data goes wrong, if there's a data quality issue, what is the financial impact on the business? And that needs to be quantified, right? It's like every time a row has to be thrown out of this data set, what happens? What is the cost of that, right? If you're not quantifying it, then it's really, really hard to ever lobby for better data quality solutions. The next thing that I would do is just understand what are all of the sources for those tier one assets, right? Like where is the data coming from? Effectively, what is the lineage of this stuff? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of tools out there that provide data lineage, I know, but what I recommend is like you could figure out the lineage by hand just to start off with and you don't need to pay for anything fancy. And that's going to give you a really great insight into who are the owners of the upstream data that you should be talking to? 
um, you know, what are the columns and uh, what is the what are, what are the um, all the uh, various things within that schema that some producer owns that like ultimately need to not change because it's not going to be 100% of what they own. It might be a column, two, three columns. Yeah. Uh, and then how severe is the problem? Mate, I love it. I love it. And I think, um, yeah, having that understanding first of um, what what are the, the tier one data sets, I love that in terms of what's, what's most needed, what's uh, getting the most uh, usage at the moment, uh, understanding what are the financial implications of having poor data quality in those data sets, um, and then uh, understanding specifically what are the, um, the, the columns or the values that are causing problems uh, and putting that in front of the, the, the right people who are up, upstream in the, in the systems. I think that that definitely goes a long, long way. Um, so you see that as kind of the, the first few stages or first few steps that the people can take. Um, and then what, 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 what should they do from there? Should they, uh, because some people and those are that I ask is so some people like to go big bang with with data quality and they say okay we need to have say a fully fledged data model for our organization or for or an industry shared data model and we need to kind of build everything to perfection before people can start using it um, or do you continue to uh, address the the use the the use cases or or the tier one data sets uh, what what do you see as the the next steps having identified the the columns and variables to to fix. Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. And it is something that I think a lot of folks get wrong when they start thinking about their data quality initiatives is, well, we need to have data quality everywhere. Um, everywhere in the business, we need to have some monitoring system. We need to have a data contracting system. We need to have tests in place and all these things. And I think that that's not great for a couple of reasons. The first is the alert fatigue that I mentioned before. If you just have a bunch of alerts that are firing off all the time and tests that are failing all the time and you're, you have, you're, you're blocking PRs all the time, then ultimately the question is going to arise, like, does this stuff actually matter? Uh, is there a good reason why I'm being, being bombarded with these alerts? And if the answer is no, right, if 90% of the alerts that I get are not useful to me, I'm just going to start tuning them out altogether. And now you've shot yourself in the foot, right? And I think there's another problem if you're asking for a large scale organizational change, which is, hey, we have to redo our entire data model and we need to go back to basics and work out all the domains and restructure everything and shift to this brand new framework and everybody needs to take ownership. And I think you know, maybe if the business has a really strong financial incentive to do that, like, hey, if we get our data in shape, we're going to make a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars. Okay. I think that that might be an easier sell, but most companies are not like this, right? Most companies do not see their data model as a revenue generator. Usually only the data team sees it that way. Um, and that's going to make selling to any leader in the company very challenging, right? If you say, hey, look, I'm, I, I want to take six months or a year or probably more likely more than a year in order to just get my data model in place and it's not exactly clear what the financial implications of this are going to be um, it's going to be involving multiple teams analysts and data scientists and analytics engineers and data engineers and architects and software engineers and all these people from all these various teams then the question is going to arise like okay so 
am I going to make more money as a CEO of this company doing what you're asking me to do or for taking those exact same resources and building more features? And mm -hmm. if the answer is, well, yeah, you're probably going to make more money on the features, then it's really hard to like argue against that. So I think the big blast, the big blast approaches um, under, unless they're under very, very certain conditions, just don't work in sort of the modern tech environment. Um, we should take a page out of the book of software engineers, right? And software engineers, I think, and product teams have really mastered how to get what they want. And that's by being iterative. You can do new things and interesting things as long as you start from an MVP, you prove out the value, and then you incrementally work your way up until you have a large-scale, full-fledged uh, product. And I think the same applies to quality and governance. You have to start with MVPs, smaller, more scoped down solutions that are limited, can be deployed very quickly, very iteratively, and you can show the value. And then from there, you can begin to roll it out across the rest of the business and then potentially even scale up the level of quality and the level of governance in different places in different times as it's needed. And um, uh, there are a bunch of uh, technical solutions that I recommend for doing this, but I, I love, love, love data contracts. And it's always the place where I like for folks to start because they facilitate that exactly that type of iteration and uh, you can scale the maturity quite easily. Yeah. That's great. So, uh, yeah, I um, I wanted to ask you more more about data contracts. Uh, so maybe let's jump in. Let's jump in now. So... Um, for the people that don't know, can you define data contracts? And then we can talk about um, starting to use them in implementations to increase data quality throughout the business. Absolutely. So a, a data contract is um, an agreement between a data producer and a data consumer on the, uh, the schema of some data asset, the semantics of that data asset, so the, the structure, the, the values uh, of, of the columns and things like this the SLAs and, and anything else sort of meaningful about the data, um, that contract is codified and there is an enforcement mechanism or some validation mechanism that is paired with each constraint. So it's truly a data quality as code. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And um, uh, I a lot of people might initially think about needing a particular or new solution or technology you know, to implement this. Um, but one of the things that I'm, that I'm picking up uh, from your approach is that you generally have kind of like a, 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 a low tech version of doing things and then a high tech version of doing things. Um, how, what, what, what are the options for people that, are, that would like to, to do data contracts? Absolutely. I think that there's um, th there's certainly sort of a, a, a maturity scale here. I, I try to work in terms of spectrums. The low-tech version is kind of building off what I said at the beginning. It's like once you have kind of figured out where your important assets are and what the data sources are, you can construct uh, paper contracts that basically go to each data source and you say, hey, there's someone important downstream that is using you. And here's what the data needs to look like in order to ensure they are protected and, you know, they don't experience any sort of, you know, outages or significant breaking changes. And you would literally just lay out that contract, right? It would be this, this is what the schema needs to be. This is what the columns, the, the values of the columns in the data need to be. 
Uh, this is what the SLA needs to be. You could put that in a Word document. If you want to get a little bit more fancy, you can put it into something like a YAML file. And I really like YAML because it's super flexible and you can do a lot of interesting things with it later. And you can store that in a GitHub repo if you want so that an engineering team can very easily access it. And I always recommend just having a meeting with those producers. And oftentimes they are shocked. Like every time that I've done this, they're very surprised that there are so many imported use cases that have taken a dependency on their data that they didn't even know existed. And oftentimes, even if it doesn't promote like immediately changing the backlog to now start thinking about data, it definitely makes the team a lot more thoughtful when it comes to communication, which is a really good starting point. Really great, really great. So yeah, I, I love um, aligning and, and agreeing on schemas, on uh, definitions of the data, on values that I can have on documentation, um, that all sounds great. I can see the the value of integrating tests uh, throughout the the pipeline. Uh, so then you're alerted early uh, when when things don't don't go that way. Um, so like yeah, once once a data contract is defined, can we talk about starting to to roll it out? So um, having that first conversation with the data producer sounds great, and kind of opening their eyes into the the possibilities of the the goal that they're producing uh, and how it gets used throughout the organization, um, and then going into implementing data contracts, uh, how does that affect the the producer consumer relationship and and what are the the challenges that you see that people face as they're implementing and then using the data contracts? Yeah, so um, to answer the first question on implementation and sort of codifying all of this. I think that the right approach is to have your contracts, which is stored, you know, in in some file in GitHub, and then the constraints of that contract are ideally enforced in CI/CD. So, um, what you want to happen is that some engineer is making a, a change, and you are able to pick up on, uh, ideally, in their sort of developer environment, hey, the output. Uh, the, the brand new schema, the output of this migration, compare it against the contract, see if there's any in incompatibilities. And then if there is, then you try to surface some communication in the PR, which is kind of the perfect time to alert someone because it's the moment that you can, it's like you're, you're kind of being forced to take accountability of the situation, right? If I deploy this change and I know that it's going to break someone, and I got all this information in context before I deployed the change, then by doing that deployment, I have effectively said that I've made a decision to break you. And yeah. that is information that the data teams can now take elsewhere. Like you can use that as a discussion point and, and you can escalate. The other thing that I really like doing is in an automated way, being able to tag the consumers of important data assets on PRs that are going to break them there are uh, pretty straightforward ways of doing this. So for example, if you have a contract, let's say it's on a Postgres database and that contract is you know, stored in some repo somewhere and a data consume, you've done this like mapping and lineage and all this other stuff that I described, a consumer could basically say, hey, I know that my some of my really important data is coming from, you know, is being enforced by this particular contract. So I'm going to subscribe to that. And anytime there is some change being made to the contract, I want to be tagged in the PR so that I can go and self-advocate, right? And yeah. so when you do that, now you're shortening that distance between uh -huh. the 
in the consumer and they're actually starting to collaborate at the point in time when the changes happen, right? It's yeah. it's not it's not months before where people forget about it, and it's not after after uh, when the damage is already in, d- done. It's at that ideal moment when the change is actually happening. So that's I think a really really good place to be. And if you can do that effectively, I you know not to be optimistic, but I would say you know it's the starting point. Um, it it probably solves. 30 to 50% of all data quality issues just on that. And once that communication exists and you have an object over which people can continue to iterate, you you start to push that number up and up and up, then 60, then 75, then 80, then 90. And now you have this asset that really covers the spectrum of data issues. Um, and then quickly to your second point of like, what are some of the problems that, some of the big issues that people run into when they're rolling out contracts? Um, one that I've seen is there's not enough attention paid to the communication and visibility aspect of the contract. It's used as kind of like a bludgeon to force the data producers to do things the way that the data consumers want. Yes. And while this does work in some organizations, there are some organizations that are receptive to that. I would say in a lot of companies that can create some organizational friction, right? especially if these teams own um, transactional systems that are very critical to the company. You just never want to block their deployments. Um, it, it gets really crazy. One of my friends works over at JP Morgan, and he works on the privacy and security um, side of things, and he owns a, a, a fraud detection model. And this fraud detection model uses data from some of JP Morgan's really important sort of money movement systems and the engineers that maintain those systems are responsible for like the moving around of I think it was sixteen trillion dollars or yeah, it's like sixteen trillion dollars a day. It's something like ten percent of the entire world's money supply every day is wow. moved by these systems, right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter that this guy has a really important fraud detection model. There is absolutely nothing that he could do that is worth breaking a build or worth stopping an engineer from deploying a change to one of those critical systems. Yeah. So if you don't focus, but but I would say that, you know, focusing on the communication and just letting that team know, hey, you're about to make a change that's really going to hurt me. It's it's going to break my use case and 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 here and, and I'd really love to talk to you about this. That creates a totally different dynamic and I and I wish people would focus on that a little more. And then the last thing that I'll say sort of on problems is we kind of touched on this already, but it's just trying to go too big too fast. It's yeah. trying to put contracts on everything, and it's insisting that the data producer is responsible for creating the contract. This is actually not a good thing, and the reason why is that the producer, in in the same way that a software engineer is not responsible for creating the requirements of, of a feature, uh, a data producer can't be re- responsible for creating the requirements of a data contract because they don't know how that data is being used, right? If, if I have a machine learning model, I might need a certain latency. I might need a, a certain percentage of errors be- before it becomes intolerable for me. I, I might need not every column in a schema to be consistent, but I might need some columns in a schema to be consistent. There's no way that the producer is going to have all of that information when they're creating the context, when they're creating the contract. And if they decide to change the contract, ultimately it still ends up with me, the consumer, being broken. So it, it really does need to be a collaborative effort. And I always recommend that it is the consumer going to the producer and saying, here's the contract that I propose that's going to work for my downstream data assets. And that's something that can evolve over time. 
Mate, that is excellent. That is excellent. Um, yeah, I, I love the the timeliness of the enforcement. I think um, having that that communication uh, at that point saves so much headaches, as you were saying. Like better than having it at the planning way earlier. Better than having um, come out of exception reporting, for example, um, and uh, way down the line. So having it there is is great. And then obviously um, people can still have exception reporting as a fallback. But the fact that it, that, that a contract is embedded in the CI/CD uh, deployment, then that's that really um, solves a lot of headaches. That's that's really great. That is really great. Um, and then so from there, um, you would be managing a lot of the um, the new deviations created through changes. You'd be managing at the point of deployment. What happens further downstream? Uh, if that if that part is going well, what happens further downstream with with alerts, uh, monitoring, um, exceptions, things like that? Uh, what what should people be thinking about on on that space? Yeah. So number one, I think that my perspective is that monitoring and alerts and testing and all of that really needs to be limited to the data pipelines where it adds a lot of value. This is kind of the theme that we're, 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 we've kind of been talking around um, during this first part of the conversation, which is that if you're monitoring everything, it ultimately ends up becoming not useful. And to take it out a little step further, if the monitor isn't directly actionable, then it's equally non-useful, right? It, it has to be actionable or in order to be valuable. And so what I recommend is including the monitors and the test as part of sort of the data contract workflow, meaning, yes, the, the CICD test, to, to your point, should catch most things. But if it doesn't catch something, then your uh, you, your monitor should be also on that important data asset. And anything that violates those tests should then feed back into the contract, right? We now have new information. This information becomes part of the contract. And now that is enforced upstream. So that makes all of the monitors, all the alerts that actually fire directly actionable. You can even integrate your monitoring and testing system with your contracting system, and it can be totally automated. Um, and it, it it brings people back in the loop, right? So if, if all of your contracts are stored in some Git-based environment, then an update to the contract is now just a PR that the engineering team, the, the producers would review. Right, and that's sort of in the exact same. It's in the exact workflow that everybody loves. You're you're not doing. You're again. You're doing things at the right point in time, and you don't have all of these useless alerts fly, firing in Slack channels that nobody checks out. Exactly. That's that's that is awesome, man. That is, that is you're you're describing uh, my nirvana. Um, it is a really good way um, to and I see yeah, so so many so many benefits going about it. Um, one one bit that uh, I wanted to come back to was around the um, getting support and getting investment for the initiatives. Um, maybe we can we can circle back to that one now. Um, yeah. That I like what you said about it being iterative and taking a leaf out of the software engineering playbook and starting with an MVP. Um, and for for the for the teams that are managing or uh too too much too much chaos at the moment maybe um and and they feel like they do need uh a bit of investment or a bit of support 
from the business in order to create the space to do um, the planning, the identification, um, start creating the, those contracts and, and create the, the change through the organization. What are some ways that they could get leadership on side uh, to be able to get that investment or, or support, even if it's bandwidth? Yeah. So what I recommend data teams do is to propose a prototyping environment for data. And uh, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, every single engineer has some sort of test, some sort of development environment where they're just kind of trying things out before it is pushed to production. Um, and so I think most CTOs and technical organizations would go along this idea with this idea of having kind of like a test development environment. But what I would say is different for data and the case that I would make is everything in that sort of developer environment is any data asset that does not have a contract. And that's because as a data scientist or an analyst, I might want to use some data that doesn't have a contract, right? It might be just some random thing from a data lake. It might be some event that, you know, was being, uh, that's been emitted for the last two and a half years, but nobody else in the company is using. Like I need the freedom to experiment when trying to answer questions. But if I'm experimenting, I probably also don't need a high amount of quality, right? I don't want to go and say, hey, I'm I'm using this random thing from your service that you're generating. And now I want you to slow down and start thinking about schema evolution, and all this other stuff, because I might not be using that particular data set tomorrow and you're still going slow, right? So that creates a lot of churn. So having a prototyping a prototype environment is really, really powerful. And what you as the data team can then say is like, look, um, everything that's in this prototyping environment is is not going to have quality because it doesn't make sense to have quality. It's going to make you go slower. You need maximum iteration speed. But we're going to provide another environment where once you've realized that a particular asset has value, there is a mechanism of through using the contract of transitioning this to production. And once it's in a production environment that we as a data team are going to give you the safety and security and quality and all of the infrastructure around that. And that starts with really great communication. And so if you if you do it that way, it's the technical teams are all going to be on board with it because it makes sense. The data teams are going to be on board with it because they want the playground. They want the ability to iterate really quickly and they want the safety and security. And you're kind of forcing people to make a choice, right? You're forcing people to say, hey, um, I, I can either choose to leave this in the prototyping environment indefinitely, and I know I won't get con uh, I won't get quality on that. Or if I, I have a mechanism to move it and get quality, but there's some work that I have to do as the consumer. I have to define what is the data that I need and and what are the what should the constraints look like and what does data quality even mean to me? And mm -hmm. by doing that, you've sort of you know uh, weeded out all of those low value use cases that you're not really wasting your time on and you're only focusing on supporting what's like really meaningful to the business. Great, great, right. I love that. I love that. Um, I know that we're um, oh, basically, basically running out of time. So I'll ask you one, one last question that I can't help myself uh, but ask mm -hmm. you. Um, I love the community that you built. Uh, what has been your, your favorite part of either the journey or the community or what is what has been the yeah the, the your favorite your uh yeah your favorite part out of what you've done there yeah so i'd say there's two things that have been really rewarding for me personally one is anytime someone from the community gets hired because of a job post on that community or by posting that they were looking for a job it happens pretty frequently 
Um, there's a lot of folks that are hiring that hire data talent from that community because it's so high quality. And there's a lot of folks that get hired. So that is extremely rewarding knowing that someone can say, hey, I'm looking for a job and here's my background and they'll get you know, five or six or 10 interviews um, just, just from our Slack channel. That's awesome. And that really made me feel good when the recession was happening and there were lots of layoffs that we could kind of be a, a place for people to go and, and get, um, get help uh, and assistance that way. The other thing that's been really rewarding is just when someone tells me, hey, I've, I've, I've brought my team here. I've brought my boss here. Uh, my boss read your content. They really loved it. They share it around the organization all the time. I've gotten quite a few of those. And to see that the things that I say in the community that I've created is actually causing change in organizations. It's causing yeah. people to think uh, a different way about data quality. I mean, that's that's really awesome to see. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, mate. And for yeah, for uh, all of our listeners, I really encourage you to check out datequality.camp slash Slack uh, to join the data quality camp. And add, thank you. I will put we'll put the link on the on the show notes. Sorry, I should have said as well uh, for people to to go in there and join. And Chad, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all your drive to help us all increase our data quality in our organizations reduce the chaos, reduce the pain. Um, and I find that, you know, the, the the people that work in this space, they really care about about having good quality data. They really care about the contribution to the organization. They really care about doing a good a good job. And and sometimes they can be the people can be quite hard on themselves when there is all that chaos. And I really like your pragmatic approach about providing some structure, providing some steps, having low tech and high tech uh, alternatives for each of the each of the steps and it really uh, clarifies how people can make a big difference to their world to their organizations and increase the impact that their their businesses can have so thank you so much for everything that you do mate and i'm very keen for everyone to uh, check out um check out the slack group so datequality.camp forward slash slack dad thank you so much again thank you so much for your time Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Thanks for watching this video all the way to the end. I hope that you got a lot out of this discussion. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe to the channel um, so more people can find out about the challenges that leaders have in the analytics and AI space. And that's what we're trying to share in Better Futurology. Uh, so please like and subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please tell your friends. Thank you so much.